of articulate, justice-minded people, women in particular in our community. Um, I have the privilege of on honoring and inviting up um, Aaron O today to share a word with us. Erin, um, in case you haven't had the chance to meet her, is um, one of the strong pastoral figures in this house. Um, she was the um, one of the co-pastors of the college group when I was in college, and fun fact, she was the first person who ever prophetically prayed for me. Um, so powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit. Um, she's revealed a lot to our community about lament and vulnerability and justice over the years, and I look forward to hearing from her today. Yeah. One of the other fun things I got to do in this house was officiate Joel and Katie Kim's wedding, and they're back. Yeah. They're great. I'm really excited about all that's ahead of them. Um, on another note, uh, I'll be honest, I kind of came in here a little bit, um, a little bit agitated, um, for those of you who may not know, uh, McKenna, our pastors, Ryan and Suki Longfield, she actually had her finger like cut off in this accident that happened. So she's in surgery right now as we speak. Um, it's upsetting, right? <laughs> um, this is the second time in her life that she's had to have surgery. Um, you know, for hands and just accidents like that. So I just like to pray for it so we can like give it to the Lord. So would you um, join me in praying for her? Um, God, I thank you that, um, that your anointing is over McKenna. I thank you for the ways that you have made her hands well. I thank you for um, the ways that you've protected her in so many ways. And we just thank you for, um, for the guidance that you're going to provide to Ryan and Suki for the comfort you're going to bring to them in this time. And God, we just pray full healing and restoration over McKenna's body in Jesus' name. And we just say that McKenna is protected. So any sense of fear, any sense of um, anxiety that would try to come over the Longfield home, we just cast it out in the name of Jesus and we proclaim your goodness here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man. Um, so uh, a couple weeks ago, Vince McCary preached to us uh, from uh, the book of Philippians. And he pointed out that the experience of the church was very similar to the experience we have in the sense that they were a very well-educated group of people, um, maturing in some ways and very steady. And so it's sort of kind of taken me through this journey where, I mean, I felt like the Lord was speaking really, really deep things to our community. Um, specifically, one of the things that he, uh, he pointed out to us was that we would start to critically examine our motives. Um, and I think it started to put me down this thought trail to the point where I elbowed my husband, Joe, who was scheduled to speak today. I was like, hey, can I take your spot? And he's like, totally, go for it. <laughs> um, but I actually want to read from the book of Philippians today. 
I'm going to do something a little bit different, and that is that I'm not actually going to give you the citation of this passage of scripture. And part of the reason for that is I've been reflecting on some of the practices we have as a church that's like very informed by our culture, right? Um, so if you're new to church, traditionally when scripture is read, the preacher will give you the exact citation of it, the exact chapter and verse, so that you can sort of cross-reference for yourself and make sure that the person's not making things up. And it's done so that you can look at the context before and after, that you can think about some of the interpretive tools that you already know go with it. And these are all really great tools. I also wonder, for us as people who are trained in this model of very deductive thinking, if we actually miss something in the scripture when we do it this way. If we don't actually just listen to it, we kind of like write it down in our journals and then we listen to the pastor's interpretation of it and we don't actually internalize what the word is saying and speaking to us. Um, so I would like to um, have us sort of come at it with a clean, fresh slate. Especially the book of Philippians, because even if you're not a Christian, you're kind of familiar with it, aren't you? <laughs> In the sense that, like, people I'm sure have seen, I can do all things through Christ on something, or I can do all things because Steph Curry has it on his stuff, or all things work to the good of those, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and we can very easily forget the fact that this is a book that's a very nuanced story that has poetry in it that says a lot to us about what God invites us into. So would you all close your eyes with me, and I am going to read from this book. And if you're concerned that I'm making stuff up, you have search engines, plug it into your phone, cross-reference yourselves. <laughs> And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I'm going to read it again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. All right, you may open your eyes. Um... Dallas Willard pointed out that uh, familiarity doesn't necessarily immediately breed contempt. Familiarity actually breeds unfamiliarity and then contempt. And what that means is you become so familiar with something that you suddenly don't really understand it or you aren't really connecting with it. And then you start to build a sense of resentment or uh, inability to understand it. So particularly with this, as we're growing in knowledge and discernment, I think it's a really interesting place for us to launch out. Um, so the Lord actually began to speak to me about this very concretely when I took my daughters to the beach recently. If you don't know me, I grew up in Encinitas, which is a little surf town, and one of our cultural values there is surfing. The way that you talk, the way that you dress, the way that you are able to discern certain waves. As we would drive to school in the mornings, you would have people, you know, oh, can you interpret the wave set as glassy, 
blown out or flat. And you all laugh, but you all do it too in your separate places of expertise. Um, so basically, you know, when you're a kid there, if you want to go to the beach by yourself, you have to go through this program. Most kids' parents make you go through this program called Junior Lifeguards, where you go and you learn how to do all the running and the swimming that lifeguards do. And you also learn to see who doesn't belong. They train you to look for people at the beach who are wearing jeans as they go into the water or other types of people, which creates an interesting little subset of tribalism in that area, um, in that you suddenly become very resentful of tourists and people who don't regularly go to the beach, like, oh my gosh, why are you crowding the waves? I totally belong here, you totally don't. And that's very much how I grew up, very immersed in this culture. And so then I take my daughters, who spent their whole lives in Oakland, to Pacifica. And I immediately realized, oh, I, I know this surf culture. I know the way people are looking at me. I know this whole thing. It's very subtle. And the other, like, surfy kids are all, like, skimboarding. They're all, like, doing all these fun things. And my kids are just sitting there, like, terrified. <laughs> they hate the breeze. They hate the sand. And there's no way they're going anywhere near the water. And I see all of, like, the kind of judgy, but kind of, like, Oh, look at those girls. They're not from around here. From all the moms around. Oh, you want to play with the sand toy? Oh, you don't really. Yeah, you guys, you guys don't. You get scared of the beach. And I'm like, I am a certified California Junior lifeguard. <laughs> I know these things. And then I was getting actually kind of upset with my kids. I was like, can you guys just play on the water? Don't stop embarrassing me. Be beach kids. You look like you don't belong here. I belong here, you don't. Anyway, so then there's a moment where God's just like, okay, look at your kids who are sitting there in awe of the waves. Like every time a wave crashes, they're like, whoa. Every time they see a surfer like coming through, they're like, oh my gosh. It's like, how much more do they understand the actual properties of the ocean that is filled with wonder and excitement and mystery than you who think you're all entitled to it. I think there are so many areas where we all do this, right? Whatever industry you're in, whatever um, situation we're in. And so that's something that I think we know about a lot, right? We should become childlike. We should be filled with wonder. I think the hard thing for me, though, is, okay, so how am I actually filled with being, like, the childlikeness and the wonder, honestly, without, frankly, pretending like I'm an idiot? How do we genuinely fill ourselves with wonder, and why should we do this? I think a lot of us are in a time where we're somewhat, well, I won't say all of us, actually, where there's some settling that's happened or some expectations or we're at a certain phase in life where we kind of have an idea of the direction we'd like to go in. I was thinking recently about um, 
when I was pretty early in my walk with the Lord, and I was struggling with a particular church leader. Uh, he was, he sort of made um, broad claims about the only way that you really know a church is solid if, is if they preach the Bible this, this, and this way. Um, particularly because I had left that church to go to college and he was helping me to discern whether or not it was a solid church. Um, and I was kind, it, it was unsettling for me because suddenly there was no church that was good enough or solid enough according to him. And I remember asking my dad, uh, what do you think about stuff like that? My dad had been walking with the Lord for a while and my dad asked me, how old is that guy? And I said, oh, he's like 35. And my dad was like, well, that's actually a really hard age. So you should have empathy for him. Because it's an age where you really feel like you know everything or you feel like you should know everything. And I was reflecting on that because I'm 34. And um, I know a lot of things. I mean... I've been in my career for over 10 years. I've been in my marriage for about eight years, taken two kids through the baby phase, and I've like, met hundreds of college kids who are like walking through Berkeley terrified that they're going to be deceived, and like talked with them about like having a sound interpretation of the Bible and what it looks like, why they shouldn't be afraid of people speaking in tongues and all those things. And I know so many things that I even know that I don't know everything. I'm that humble. <laughs> but recently, I lost my job. And the Lord was asking me to change careers. And recently, we've been going through some communication challenges. Not like deep, deep stuff, but we were both very intuitive communicators who will like talk over each other and usually it's like, really efficient and we're like yeah yeah I got you I got you I got you and then what we've been doing lately is we're like no that's not what I was asking you can you just wait till I finish which isn't it's just another way of realizing oh I don't know everything about you I don't know everything you're going to say and that's okay I propose that's the case for many of us especially those of you who are you know, like newly very invested in the ark, or those of you who have been at the ark for a long time, or other church situations. So the vision of this church is sustained revival, right? And I'm sure that a lot of us have had very utopian images of what that looks like. And I'm sure the Lord has systematically dismantled those utopian visions, and we respond in one of two ways. We either get really bitter and upset with God for doing it that way, or we become really ambivalent and detached. So the thing I started looking at in Philippians is, how do people who are educated, experienced, and steady, how do we resurrect wonder? So I wanna kind of propose some of the things that we see in the Bible. I'm really interested in the way that the book of Luke is bookended. So it starts in chapters four to five where it's just really fast. Wonder, miracles, signs and wonders, everything is just astonishing and that's where Jesus calls his first disciples. 
And then it ends in chapter 24, where all of the disciples are absolutely frightened by him coming back just as he said he was going to. So all those signs and wonders and all that didn't really actually have an impact on their wonder near the end. In fact, he says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? And then he takes them through the end and he says, you know, touch me, eat with me. And then at the end he says, go to be with other people. So I think that that's the first thing that we need to do to resurrect wonder. We need to put ourselves alongside people who are not immediately familiar to us, where we go out and we begin to have a sense of mission and care. I mean, I think that, I mean, immediately he departs and they begin to worship. And I think that this is, looks a couple of different ways for us. There's the mission and there's the going out, but I think for others of us, it looks like people within the body. I was thinking about, you know, it's interesting that Steph pointed out that I was so about justice, because that was, that was probably not the person I was not that long ago. In fact, I took a job near the beginning of my career at kind of a, at the time, neoconservative charter school, which kind of had this attitude towards um, like different minority students of, well, they just need to work harder and someone needs to push them and somebody needs to have high expectations. And I held that view. And then one day, a kid that I had been tutoring after school every week Uh, He, in the middle of my PE prep period, I see that he's in the office in handcuffs with a police officer, like, getting in his face. He was accused of shoplifting a bottle of tequila at the time that I was tutoring him. Now, this kid, I was like, okay, well, shoplifting hot Cheetos, that might have been his thing, but tequila, yeah. And I had the whole experience where I was like, oh, you know, I'll just go in and have a nice conversation with this police officer. And I explained, like, look, here's the sign-in sheet. He was here during this time. And the guy yells at me and tells me, this doesn't concern you. You should leave. And the whole thing was just really disorienting for me. You know, long story short, his dad comes in and his dad's, you know, sort of like, gives, you know, helps him to negotiate the situation. And I realized how little I knew about the kids that I was serving. Since then, I've tried to put myself in situations where I learn and know. But I think that many of us can be in situations where we speak very lofty ideas about what we think should happen without actually putting ourselves right next to and beside the people that we're talking about. And so, I mean, I'm even grateful that when uh, Reverend Wanda came, I think that some of us were challenged. And we had to really look at how our politics are disrupted to receive different truths. I wanna read one of the scriptures that passed, it's also in Philippians, (laughs) that Pastor Wanda, often cites 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I mean, I think that a lot of us need to think about how we're in situations where this is not immediately familiar. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to be the social sector. We can be in our workplaces and looking around the table saying, like, who's not here? Why does everybody at this table look immediately familiar to me? I can ask who's not here. And if somebody I see is making that person uncomfortable, we have the power to say, I don't like the way you're talking to them. Incidentally, I'm no longer people's bosses, so I get to say that, and it's not like an HR thing, so I'm super blessed by that. <laughs> the second thing I think we see in Philippians is this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that the Philippians were asked to work things out with fear and trembling. Not with reason and deduction. But there's like this deferential treatment you have where it's not exactly going to work out the way that you expected. It's not exactly, why didn't I get that job? Why didn't I get that house? We sing a lot of worship songs that deal with invisible things. And yet, we still approach things with the same deductive reasoning that we've been trained in in school. We're supposed to set our minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. And how do you do that when the invisible means heaven? And I think, and this is the big thing that's, I think, hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it means that we as an intellectual people have to understand that the main way that our minds have been engaged is through this kind of enlightenment deal. And it's not necessarily the full capacity of where our mind works. We need to resurrect our capacity for imagination. Because a lot of Enlightenment philosophers, they thought, okay, well, let's not allow this imagination thing to happen because it's just fluffy, fanciful, nonsensical things that are going to deceive people. And how often do we hear that creep into our theology, too? People are so afraid, like, you know, deductively reason through the word. Otherwise, people will be deceived. And that's not a bad thing, right? But what we have to understand is that if we approach the word that way, that's like having blinders on and pretending that nothing outside of those blinders exists. It's not as though it's either or, it's just both and, and it needs to be more complete. Um, 
And I think we forget that the whole point of why Jesus came is because he was a physical representation of the unseen. How else would we resurrect our capacity for imagination? And think about the way that Jesus spoke to people. It wasn't always necessarily reasoning each and everything. Do you know that Jesus, instead of speaking in parables, he very, he's, I mean, he's God. He could have easily reasoned through each and every aspect of human study. He could have explained to people the metaphysical components of how faith works and all these things, but instead, he gives us this beautiful imagery, which is with faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move over here. And I think that we forget that there are certain ways that Jesus has asked us to stop, step back, and look at the unseen and place it into something that reveals imagery, something that reveals a model. So, I mean, okay, I'm going to say a phrase that I hate, but I know I'm getting meta. I hate that because I feel like I hear it so often and I hear people saying, this is so meta, and it's basically an excuse to be intellectually lazy. Like the second we've started to think slightly abstractly, like, ooh, you're getting so meta. But I do want us to get to this place, and I do want us to think carefully about this because this is the whole of who Jesus was. I think about, okay, so very specifically, I think about this as a math teacher. For years and years, people have always taught math from a place of trying to get kids to be human calculators, which is stupid because calculators will always be better than kids. <laughs> there's, so, there's this whole other component that would completely engage kids, which is, did you know that a perfect circle does not exist? It's in your imagination. Whoa. <laughs> so meta. <laughs> and then even taking them to a place of imaginary numbers and all of these interesting ways that we're learning now, this is actually how kids learn math best. Instead of trying to get them to this very reductive, very isolated, very mathematical component. And I'm not talking about when we go to this place of imagination, I'm not talking about just hallucinating and fanciful imagination. That's not actually what our imaginations were designed for. Our imaginations were designed to take the unseen and put it into a substance or a framework. So whether that's the poetry, whether that's the swell of a symphony, even for some of you, whether it's like this beautiful scientific model where you're like, oh my gosh, I know this lofty thought and now it's in a model. And I'm saying that we need to refine that part of our minds if we truly are able to grow in knowledge and discernment. If you would, please close your eyes again. And I'm going to read something else to you. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food, day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God? With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You can open your eyes. Some of us had looked at this scripture very deductively, analyzing exactly the context and how we know about it. What I think is so interesting is that, you know, this part where it talks about, um, they say to me, where is your God? Atheism wasn't necessarily a thing at this time where the psalmist is writing. But the psalmist is writing about the taunts that he experiences in his soul and taking those things and putting them onto paper, putting words onto the imagery of the spiritual. And then this whole thing, too, where it talks about as the deer's panting for the water. It's not necessarily either or. The, deer's, the deer would pant it meant scratching the surface, knowing that water was beneath. And how many times have we done that where we are just so grieved? We are in this place of despair and mourning because we know that God is under there. We know, and we're panting, and we're going after these things. But intellectually, we don't yet have language or a framework for it. I've seen people going through that where they are panting and they are panting and they are trying to rationalize it. They are trying to intellectualize it. They are trying to say all of the good Christian best practices for it instead of embracing what the Lord is teaching them through that time and putting words and language to it. I'm going to read from uh, Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. not like we are living our lives without imagination. Very intellectual people often struggle the most with anxiety. Because it's not like you're not imagining things, but instead of allowing the, ma the imagination of rejoicing in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, and then it goes on to talk about whatever's true, whatever's honorable, meditate, think about those things, imagine those things, create art, create wonder around those things. And instead, intellectual people, we just imagine what if. And the what if is driven completely by fear. And I'm not saying it's either or, I'm saying it's both and. Anxiety comes up when we're so used to saying, I've already known that. I already know that. So I don't even have to wonder. I've been helping my daughter through her nightmares a lot lately. 
Um, she has this specific night, two specific nightmares, one about zombies, which thanks kids at school. She didn't even know what a zombie was. And then the other one is of this really mean witch who comes to get her. And I tried for so long to appeal to reason and reason alone. Like, where does this witch come from? This witch has no substance. This witch is not a real person. This is ridiculous. And there's some portion of that. Remember, it's none either or both hand. But what actually helped more than anything was to just go into it from a place of imagination, but that that imagination was bringing in the truth. So we started to, I said, started asking questions. Oh, what do you think that, why do you think the witch is like so mean? Probably because nobody likes her. Probably because she doesn't know Jesus. True. These are all very true, and this is all very good things because I think that underlying that is this anxiety of mean people coming into your life who are mean to you for no reason. And instead of saying, that never happens, don't worry about it, instead, I think that the Lord invites her into this place of saying, well, what would happen? What, what would happen if she met your family? What would happen if she met Jesus? So my prayer for us is that we open up this space for imagination. And I think it's going to take some time and some training and some changing of our mindset. So with that in mind, I would love to pray for us. And um, I would just like to pray for us. God, I thank you that you are stirring in our community a need to activate wonder, imagination, and the capacity for you to minister to the infinite nature of our souls that you created. God, I pray that our community would love more and more with knowledge and discernment and with ways that open up our capacity to love and care for other people. God, I pray that as we as people engage with the ways that you've created this world to be, that we engage with the ways that you have reflected high truths in our everyday lives. So we just bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we have about five more minutes. Um, I would love to um, have just a space of a little bit more response time to this word. Um, yeah, Lord, we, um, we just appreciate the ways that you call us, the ways that you invite us into growing, even when that looks sometimes like being younger, by being more childlike, by um, taking on uh, ways of interacting with you in this world that are more counterintuitive to our day-to-day -day being than, than maybe we, we take the time to realize, God. Um, yeah, God, would you, um, 
Would you speak to each and every person in here about what does it look like to captivate our hearts with images and visions of you, Lord, about what it looks like to hold this both and of, of reason and um, knowing and discerning and also um, the, the greatness of your love and the greatness of your ways and, and the, the um, imagination that we get to have of what it looks like to rejoice with you, Lord. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll have just a few minutes here. Um, Joy will play in the background. Um, I just encourage you to, to spend um, some time, again, similar to at the end of worship, of just uh, letting the Lord speak what he has um, of this word to you individually um, and to seal some of uh, what the, the next steps of what the action looks like um, to engage with, um, with Jesus, with the word, with the Lord in this way. <laughs> 